you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel according to Matthew this morning, we'll be looking at the end of chapter 3. In Matthew 3, John the baptizer has been going about his work by the River Jordan. At the end of the chapter, he has an unexpected visitor. So we'll read from Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, the reading through verse 17. So hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray the reading of God's Holy Word, let us pray and ask him to bless it. Heavenly Father, indeed, we know that you have promised to bless your word and its reading and its preaching and its study, so we ask that that would be the case this morning, not that our, our minds would, would be expanded with more knowledge, although we do want that, Lord, ultimately we want to know you and your son better. We want to behold your glory in more detail. We have to sing in the depths of our soul with gratitude and thanksgiving for what this text reveals of you and your salvation to us in Christ. May he be high and exalted and lifted up through our time in Matthew this morning. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, my family and I, we hail from the northern part of this county. There's a college town up there you may have heard of. And living in a college town... Boy, you realize that there are a lot of people out there obsessed with credentials. They want to know, they want you to know where they went to college, which degrees they have, who they studied under, what sort of honors they have. I uh, work for my day job, a publishing company, and it's very similar in that world too. If you, if you want to publish a book, you, you extol all your credentials. I've been there, I've done that, I've studied under that person, I have this degree, and these honors, you, you look at the back of the book, and if, if a man or woman has a PhD, you can be sure it'll be listed in the little author blurb. I have one pastor friend who got a PhD. Simply so, in the back of his books, you can say he had a PhD. That's literally the reason that he gave. Uh, people interested in credentials. Now, this isn't entirely bad. Uh, imagine uh, a doctor came to you and said, uh, you need to have a colonoscopy and hey, stainless steam or carpet cleaning is going to do it for you. <laughs> there would be a mismatch, wouldn't there, between the need and the credentials. You say, actually, I think I'll go to a doctor. If you needed your carpets cleaned, you maybe you wouldn't go to a veterinarian. You would go to a cleaning service. So, so credentials can be important uh, when they tell us something significant about the person involved, or the task to which the person has been assigned or called or is wanting to do. 
And if you look in the opening chapters, really, of the Gospel according to Matthew, you see Matthew very carefully giving us the credentials of this man who comes on the scene, Jesus of Nazareth. We see, if you, if you know the first few chapters of Matthew, you'll see Jesus as a, a, a baby, you'll see his parents, and you'll see the credentials about him being uh, from Nazareth, about him being uh, one who came up out of Egypt, about one who was born in Bethlehem. You see one who was descended from Abraham and from David and from all the kings of Israel. You'll see Matthew telling us what would be on Jesus' business card if they had business cards in that day. But now, for the first time, we see Jesus as an adult. This is the, the debut, if you will, of his public adult ministry. And we have the most remarkable of credentials laid before us this morning in this text. But let us be clear, friends. This is not merely so that we know what would be on the back of the book that Jesus was writing. Matthew lays this out for us so we may know that we have a Savior who identifies with us, that we have a Savior who has come to rescue us, that we have a Savior who has come to rule over his people well. These are the credentials of Jesus laid out for us in this text. So as we look at it this morning, we'll look at it under three headings. We'll begin in, in verses 13 to 15. And we'll see Jesus' ministry explained. And in fact, this very event explained. Verse 16, we'll see Jesus' ministry empowered. In verse 17, we'll see Jesus' ministry endorsed. Jesus' ministry explained and empowered and endorsed for that end. That we may know and believe that we have a Savior who has come to represent us, to rescue us, to rule over us. We begin verse 13. We want to get Jesus' ministry explained. And it begins by, by remarking that John has been baptizing in the Jordan River. And, and if you want to know why was John baptizing by the Jordan River, you can rest assured that scholars have poured a lot of time and sweat and ink out trying to figure this out. Or you can just read the first half of the chapter. Because Matthew tells us, John tells us why he's been baptizing. Look at, for instance, verse 2. Repent kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 6, they are being baptized, confessing their sins. Verse 8, bear fruit, keeping with repentance. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Four times this text tells us that John was preaching and administering a baptism of repentance. But when people heard John preach, they were convicted that their hearts were cut to the quick because of their sin. They recognize, they confess their sins, their, their need to, to turn from the life of sin to a life following after the Lord God. And they underwent baptism as a sign of that need for cleansing and new life. Most people in that day and age who got baptized were Gentiles. You would not baptize a young Jewish person, you would circumcise him if he was a boy. But if you were a Gentile coming into the Jewish faith, you would have to be Baptized as a sign of your cleansing and your coming into the people of God. But if you read Matthew 3, these are Jews being baptized. They were saying that we need to be cleansed. We need to be brought anew to the people of God. And so that's what Jesus, John, is all about. People realizing their sin, their need for cleansing. 
But then Jesus shows up and says, yeah, I need that too. He says, won't you baptize me? And John's response in verse 14 would surely be all of our responses. What? He says, no, 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 you have the shoe of the wrong foot, Jesus. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John knows who the sinner is here. He knows it's not his cousin, Jesus. He knows it's himself. He says, this is one who, who's so holy, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. As he says in another gospel. And John wants to know, why would Jesus come to be baptized in a baptism of repentance when he has nothing to repent for? Why would he take this sign of cleansing when he has nothing to be cleansed of? And Jesus, patient Jesus, tells him so. Verse 15, well, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says it is Fitting. He says it, it's appropriate, it's suitable, it's, it's apt, it's right, it's proper for us, for, for what the two of us are going to do here in this water to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean, to fulfill all righteousness? This, this word means to bring to completion, to bring to fullness, to bring to, to the total understanding of that which accords with righteousness with the right character of God, with the right status of, of the holy maker of the universe and all his requirements given to his people in his word, in his law. In other words, Jesus says, for, for God's righteous character, for God's supreme moral ethos and character to be brought to fullness and to fruition and to full flower in the lives and the hearts of his people. It is fitting, it is right for Jesus to be identified as a sinner. For Jesus to take that status, that stain, that, that stigma upon himself as one of the sinful people of God. Do you see now why I said these verses explain Jesus' ministry? That Jesus' ministry makes no sense if we don't understand that he came to be one of us, not merely in flesh and blood, which was remarkable enough, but to be one of us as a sinful representative of flesh and blood. No, not that Jesus himself sinned. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's, it's right for me to take this status upon myself as a representative of you. And the reason this explains Jesus' ministry here with his first baptism is because Jesus will say later, I have a second baptism. When he's speaking to his disciples about where things are headed, where, where the trajectory of his ministry is going, what he sees looming on the horizon of his years walking on earth as an adult. There's a second baptism, he says. He says that baptism of, of fire, 
that baptism of suffering, that baptism of the cross that he sees looming on the horizon only makes sense if he's identified with his people as a sinner. For again, you'd have the same question. Why, why crucify? Why you allow yourself to be executed if you're not a sinner? Because we are sinners. Because he saw us and says, I, I want and I desire and I come to rescue you. And it's not going to be a, a distant marionette playing with strings sort of salvation. It's going to be one coming right to where you are, taking that status upon myself to fulfill a righteousness for, for the Lord's character to be revealed in your life, in the world itself, to the, to the watching Romans and sinners of his own day and to us alike. After all, what would Jesus say when he begins his public ministry after his baptism and temptation? In Luke 5, he says, I, I have come to call not the righteous. I haven't come to call those who don't need any baptism. Of course, they all do. He's saying, I haven't come to call those who think they are righteous. He says, I have come to call sinners. I have come to those who, who recognize their need for someone like Jesus to share his righteousness with them. Because they share his sinful status with him. But again, this is not merely for us to have information about Jesus. This is for us to follow in John's footsteps. John realized his need for this man to baptize him. John realized his sin and his need for cleansing. The question for us is, do we? Remember, Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous. I, I didn't come those, to call those who thought they were doing all right on their own. I didn't come to call those who thought they had it all put together, that they, they were, uh, you know, pretty good people, hardworking laborers, faithful citizens, decent parents, loving children. None of those things are bad, but, but if that's what's on your business card, if that's what your status is before your heavenly father, be sorely disappointed by his response. Says, I, I came to call sinners. I came to save those who recognize their lack of standing, their lack of credentials, their lack of righteousness, their lack of any moral cleanliness to offer on their own. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's what he and John demonstrated and accomplished and explained through his baptism. But of course, as I hinted at a minute ago, this wasn't the fulfillment of his ministry. This was merely a beginning. This was merely showing what he had come to do. How will he actually fulfill it? How will he actually be able to do this calling to which the Lord has called him? We see in verse 16, his ministry and power, don't we? The text tells us immediately. Immediately after Jesus came up for the baptism, there can be no mistake right away. Like a dove, the Holy Spirit of God descended upon him. Like a dove. What does that mean? Ever wondered? Luke, Luke says, uses the phrase in bodily form. Right? That word form is, is carrying a lot of weight there. It doesn't say it wasn't a dove. There was not a, a bird descending, but, but something uh, like a dove. Remember the, holy, remember the word for spirit also means wind. So you, you can imagine something 
some sort of visible fluttering of the atmosphere, of the wind, sort of like a dove flies for this purpose, so that the people can know, oh, the Spirit, the wind, the, the breath of God himself is being poured out upon this man. This visible sign so the onlookers could know that Jesus, this man from Nazareth, this, this son of a carpenter or mason, has been shown to be one with the power of the Holy Spirit. And these people were no fools. They knew their Old Testament. They knew what kind of people had the Holy Spirit poured out upon them in God's word. Flip back through the Old Testament, you'll find Old Testament servants like Joshua, baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll see prophets like Moses and Ezekiel receive the Holy Spirit. You'll see priests like Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the text tells us, has the Spirit poured out upon him. But particularly in the Old Testament, you'll see kings receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose, to empower their ministry. Saul receives the Holy Spirit, not because he was the best king of all time, but because he desperately needed the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill his calling. And once he became disobedient and that calling was removed from him, the, the Spirit was removed from him and it went to be with David as a sign of the empowerment that the Holy Spirit would give David. So, by this baptism here in Matthew 3, we know that just as these holy men of old, these servants, these prophets, these priests and kings had the Holy Spirit poured out upon them, so Jesus is the servant, the prophet to bring God's word, the, the priest to make intercession and sacrifice of himself for his people, the king to rule over God's people well, and if you read the rest of the Gospels, you know this is no mere theoretical status as one baptized by the Holy Spirit. Immediately, the Holy Spirit in chapter 4 will lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, to show that he's the true, better Israel, to show that he is the defeater of Satan. Chapter 12, we'll have Isaiah 42 quoted, where the Lord says, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Gentiles, us, we have hope because the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Jesus. Or Luke 4, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 as a sign of his public ministry. What does he say there? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Because of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, he has come to, to free the poor and the blind physically, yes, but, but more importantly, spiritually. Those who are in captive, captive to sin, those who are in prison to the devil, those who are blind to things spiritually, the Lord gives sight. And yes, even Jesus' great and ultimate work for us, his death and his resurrection were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that it was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, therefore securing our salvation. 
We are justified. We are declared righteous by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6 says. So friends, this is why the one who is baptized by John is also baptized by the Holy Spirit. Not merely to identify with us, but to save us. That Jesus came in the power of the Holy Spirit to teach, to defeat Satan in the wilderness, to proclaim sight to the blind, but ultimately to be crucified, to be raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. But here's the amazing thing. In the Gospel according to John, John the Evangelist tells us that the, at this very same scene, at this scene between John the Baptizer and Jesus, John says this, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You see, that, that same Spirit who was poured out on Jesus for his resurrection and his everlasting life, is poured out on you as well by Christ. That, that just as the Lord Jesus was, was vindicated by the Spirit, as Scripture tells us, was raised by the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit is poured out on you. So that Paul can say in Romans 8, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit. I don't know very many of you very well, but I do know that in any church of any size, there are those who are weak, those who are ill, those who are ailing, those who are grieving, those who have passed away. I know that perhaps nothing can, can speak more gently to, to the desires of our hearts than the truth that Paul lays out for us in that text. That if the Spirit raised Christ from the dead. The Spirit poured out, anointed, lavished upon Jesus in our, in our text this morning. If that Spirit was poured out on Christ, that same Spirit will bring you everlasting life as well. That if Jesus was raised to glory, to immortality, to face death never again in his physical body, that same truth is true of all of us. We have faith in Christ. That same Spirit is lavished upon us to give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit. Yes, we still face sickness. Yes, we still face cancer and disease and just plain getting old. Scripture promises us that's not the end. For the Spirit baptized upon Christ will be poured out and has been poured out as well. Because if, if Christ in his first coming was made to be like us in this baptism, then Christ in his second coming will make us to be like him. That we will share his glory. That we will share his resurrection body. That we will share that same victory over the grave, over death, over sin, over Satan. We, we will have truly spiritual bodies, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Not spiritual as in non-physical. Spiritual as in physical bodies empowered and enthused and enlightened and in 
purified by the Holy Spirit, never to suffer, never to, to, to endure anything from a stubbed toe to stage four cancer or anything in between. The everlasting life is wrapped up in this dove-like descending, the Holy Spirit, the empowered Christ it empowers us now in our daily walk before the Lord, and it will empower us for resurrection life eternally. But in case you doubt, in case you wonder if this could be true, all you have to hear is the testimony of those who were there that day because they heard with their own ears the endorsement of Jesus' ministry in verse 17. They heard it. They heard the voice thundering like the clouds of heaven, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We won't miss the, the external, again, verification of Jesus' credentials as my son. This is not merely a, you know, a proof text for the Trinity, although it is. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. When Jesus and John's audience heard this declaration of, of my son, they would have understood this to be a royal term. In the Old Testament, to be the, to be the son of God was to be the one whom the Lord had ordained to sit upon the throne of Israel. This is what he declares to, to David in 2 Samuel 7 when he makes that everlasting covenant to have his son on the throne, beginning with David, but ending with one who would reign forever. We see this in Psalm 2. We see this in Psalm 89 when Jesus is declared the firstborn of, of the Lord, the highest of the kings of the earth, which Paul picks up in Colossians 1. Isaiah 11, that, that one who has the spirit is also the king. Isaiah 42 makes the same point. Isaiah 61, those texts I mentioned earlier that are referenced to the Gospels. Make that same point that he who has the spirit is the king, the ruler of God's people. So when Jesus is declared to be the son of God, it's not merely a nice handy proof text for the Trinity to use against your Jehovah's Witness friends, although it is that. No, more, much more, it's, it's, a, it's a declaration of Jesus' royal kingship. But again, who... Who, who is it that could be an eternal king? Who is it that could be a perfect king? Who is it who could, who could fulfill that promise in 2 Samuel 7 to reign forever? What, what, what does Peter say in Acts? It wasn't David. We know where David's tomb is. We could go there today and see that David wasn't that king who would reign forever. No, the only one who could be an eternal king, a perfect king, would be one who, who shared the traits of the only one who is eternal and perfect, who was himself God in his omnipotence, who, who is all wise, who, who was eternal. That, that's the only kind of person who could be a perfect king forever. In case you haven't checked, forever is a long time. To be the king forever, you, you must share the traits of God. The only way you could be Sharing God's omnipotence and eternality and perfect wisdom as if you were God himself. So Jesus is God's son as the king, but Jesus is, is God's son as the eternal second person of the Trinity begotten by his father for all eternity. 
yes, he's the final great royal son of God, but to be that, he had to be the great divine son of God. Friends, the one who identifies with us in order to save us from our sins, the one who anoints us with his spirit is king. He's the one winning subjects to himself, winning for himself a kingdom, winning, winning a church, winning us to him. Not to be the sort of king who rules from afar, but the one who has taken upon his flesh, our flesh, has identified with us, who has died for us, has raised us with him spiritually. And one day we'll do so physically that we may live before our king forever in perfectness and righteousness and bodies that will never fade or spoil or decay, that we may be forever and fully his let us pray. God and Father, we thank you for the good news that you've given us of the status of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray this would be our only confidence, our only comfort, our only hope, yea, in life and in death, that we would know that Jesus Christ has come to be one of us, to make himself like us, that we may be made like him forever. Thank you for this truth. May it enliven our hearts as we seek to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.